Go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Genesis. Let us look together at Genesis chapter 20. As we continue moving our way verse by verse through this book and through the life of this man called Abraham, we're going to look this morning, beginning in in chapter 20, verse 1, and we're going to move through the first seven verses of chapter 21. So we're covering um, more ground than usual this morning, uh, chapter 20 and seven verses into 21. So let's look together at these verses. Let me read them for us. Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes. I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. And therefore I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abram and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. 
And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. We talk a lot here at Mount Hermon about heroes. We can admire the athletic abilities of the sports superstars of our day. We can be amazed by the the vocal and the musical talents of various singers or bands or instrumentalists. But when it comes to seeking out men and women that we can long to emulate and long to imitate, our eyes should look to those who have walked most closely with the Lord Jesus Christ and who have been used most mightily by Him for His glory. As the old couplet says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so when it comes to finding heroes, we ought to look especially to those who have given their all for Christ. Look to missionaries, people like Adoniram and Ann Judson in Burma, or John Payton in the New Hebrides, David Brainerd in New England, David Livingston trampling through the jungles of Africa with the Gospel of Christ. We can look to those who boldly stood for Christ when it meant losing their lives. People like Polycarp and Perpetua, John Huss, and particularly on this day, we could think of someone like Martin Luther who risked his neck for the sake of the Gospel, saying, here I stand. We can think of people like Liskin Dirks and so many other men and women, even children, who refused to recant their faith in the most difficult of circumstances. We can look to those who devoted their talents to serving God. Those who have served God and His people through poetry, through art, through the writing of hymns. We can even look perhaps to some of our own kin. Perhaps some of you have a a grandmother or great-grandmother, a grandfather or great-grandfather that has become a spiritual hero in your life because of how this man or woman walked so closely with the Lord and lived with such integrity and was such an example to you of what it means to walk with Him. Whoever our heroes are, however, we must be careful that we never begin to see them as if they were people who could do no wrong. Our heroes should be precious to us because of the fact that they too were sinners. The reason our heroes mean so much to us is that their lives stand as a testimony, not to their own glory, but to the glory of God, who in His grace took these men and women and made them what they became. The lesson we should learn from our heroes is that when we look to Christ, There's hope even for people like us. No matter our age, no matter our background, no matter our past sins or present struggles, Christ can work even through us and do mighty things. And our heroes remind us of this. Christ can bring us to walk with Him in a way that fills our hearts with such joy that we overflow into lives of service and blessing to others. If we fall into the trap 
of beginning to think that our heroes are people who could do no wrong. They cease to point us to Christ. They cease to be heroes and become idols. We are not to be a people of idols. The Bible is full of men and women worthy of our consideration to be spiritual heroes to us. Yet in the Bible, we find men and women, let me say it this way, throughout, throughout history, there have been those who tried to portray some of these biblical heroes as if they could do no wrong, as if they were not sinners like us. Now, I'm not speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ was sinless. He is the only exception to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is because our Savior was sinless that He was able to be the spotless Lamb for us, sacrificed on the cross. He was sinless as the Son of God. But nobody else has ever lived a sinless life. And yet there seems to be this, this trend throughout history of people looking upon biblical heroes as if they were perfect or, or at least almost perfect. We could think about Jesus' mother, Mary. She was not a sinless woman. Yet for a hundred of years, we have had a teaching, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, that she was a sinless woman. Now, there's no biblical evidence for that, but it has been assumed that the only way for Jesus to have been born sinless was for his mother to have been sinless as well. But that just isn't true, nor taught in the pages of Scripture. Mary is a fantastic hero. Mary is a great spiritual hero, especially for young ladies. I mean, her faith in the most incredible circumstances, is a great model for us to look at and to learn from. But it's, it, it's a model for us because she was like us. She too was a sinner with struggles. Well, perhaps there is no other figure in the Bible that has been more often presented as perfect or almost perfect than Abraham. Throughout the centuries, in Christian pulpits, and particularly in Jewish synagogues, Abraham has been painted as an almost perfect man. Allow me to give you a couple of quotes from some ancient Jewish works that show you what I'm talking about. Listen to this. This is from the Prayer of Manasseh. It's an apocryphal Jewish work. Listen. Therefore thou, O Lord God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but for those like me who are sinners. So we have supposedly this prayer of King Manasseh, and he basically says to God, Oh God, you didn't appoint this thing called repentance for people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who never sinned. You appointed repentance for me who is a sinner. Or this from the book of Jubilees. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and was well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Now, dear friends, as we have been going through our study of Abraham, does that sound like an accurate picture of the man that we have seen? Does that fairly represent this man? 
It does not. You may remember that when we came to the second half of Genesis 12, where Abraham deceived Pharaoh and allowed Pharaoh to take his wife into Pharaoh's harem, I mentioned that there were some commentators who refused to say that that was wrong on Abraham's part. They argued that Abraham was simply being shrewd, that Abraham was simply being wise, that it was the best option he had. Apparently, trusting the Lord was not a better option in that situation. Friends, these commentators treated Abraham's dishonesty and his failure as a husband as a virtue. We must not look at Abraham this way. Abraham serves us not because he was some model of perfection, because that would not help a sinner like me. (laughs) What good is Abraham if he doesn't even relate to me? No. Abraham serves us because he was like us. His faith wavered. At times his faith was strong, and at times his faith was weak. One chapter, we find him confessing his faith in the word that God just speaks to him. And we come to the next chapter, and he falls on his face. Now that I can relate to. How about you? Does that sound familiar? Yet despite all of Abraham's foibles, despite all of Abraham's failures, despite Abraham's sin, despite Abraham's wickedness at times, we find God forgiving him again and again. We see Abraham beginning to grow in his faith. We see God mature him. And by the time we get to two chapters from now, we see Abraham become a man of incredible faith. And so he is encouraging to us. Because he gives us hope. All right. My message this morning is quite simple. Two headings. The first heading is, what does this passage tell us about us? Second heading is, what does this passage tell us about our God? What does this passage tell us about us? What does this passage tell us about God? I'm just going to make a few observations under each heading. Let's begin with what this passage tells us about us. Observation number one. The first observation I want to make concerning what this passage tells us about us is that even after the most extraordinary graces, Christians can relapse again into old sins. Even after the most extraordinary graces, Christians can relapse again into old sins. In our passage, Abraham deceives King Abimelech by allowing him to know that Sarah is his sister while keeping hidden the fact that she's also his wife. Now she's his half-sister. And in fact, the fact that he was married to his half-sister was not nearly as strange in Abraham's day as it is in ours. But this information is hidden from Abimelech, and Sarah is now taken as one of Abimelech's wives. Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? Nod your head. We've seen this before, right? Excuse me. This is exactly what took place in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh. It appears that Abraham feared for his safety, for these pagan kings seem to have been known to kill men who came into their realms in order to take their wives for themselves. 
Now, it may be simply that these men were, were out simply to have these wives for themselves. It was perhaps also a way for these kings to exert their authority. They kept their people in check by showing that they were the kings. And the way they showed they were the kings was when they chose to, they would kill men who came into their realm and take their wives for themselves as a way of saying, I'm the head. Well, in verse 13, you see verse 13, we learned that years ago, decades ago, when Abraham began his journey into Canaan, he had charged his wife to play this charade in every town that they came to. In every town they came to, she was to, to be known as Abraham's sister, but not as his wife. Now, earlier, when Abraham pulled this little we call it shenanigans, maybe. He pulled this little charade in Egypt. We saw him brought to a place of repentance. By the time we got to Genesis 13, we found him leaving Egypt, returning to the promised land, and again calling on the name of the Lord. So for us, we thought Abraham had learned his lesson. We thought he had been rebuked by God and learned that he is to trust God rather than to try and do things sinfully. And yet, look at all that has just happened. Think about all the graces that have just occurred in Abraham's life. In chapter 18, the Lord himself appears to Abraham and informs him that within one year, the promised son will be there. The Lord has just come to Abraham and said, Abraham, in one year, the son that you've been praying for for decades, the son I've been promising you for decades, he's going to be here in one year. Moreover, Abraham has just witnessed God's judgment against sin on the cities of the valley, cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. He has seen God's faithfulness and rescuing Lot out of Sodom. Since back, way back in chapter 12, when we first saw Abraham pull this little scheme, he's been told to go outside and count the stars, for that's how many his descendants will be. Since chapter 12, Abraham was able to watch as the Lord himself passed between the, the split carcasses of the animals, taking an oath that his promises to Abraham will come true. Abraham has heard the Lord's commands to be faithful to him. Abraham has been circumcised as a seal of the covenant. There has been grace after grace after grace, means of grace after means of grace after means of grace. And when we come here, we find Abraham yet still falling again into the sins of earlier days. We read this passage and it's easy to become frustrated with Abraham. It's almost like Abraham is working against God's promise. <laughs> right? Abraham, God has said that the son will be here by next year. And instead of being with your wife, you are sending her away into the harem of another man. You are refusing to even acknowledge her as your wife. Are you trying to keep God from blessing you, Abraham? In Abraham, we learn that even after much grace and many kindnesses from God, we are still susceptible to the sins of former days. Put us in certain circumstances, and if we are not being careful to trust Christ above all else, we can relapse.
How many times, Christians, have you shook your head in disbelief that you fell into that same old sin again? You thought you had it beat. You thought you had matured. Surely you were beyond doing such a foolish thing again, and yet you went and did it. At times, it can cause us to doubt our salvation. And if we are slow to acknowledge our sin, if we don't grieve over our sin, if we don't take steps to fight our sin, we do have cause to doubt our salvation. But even when we are quick to see what we've done, even when by God's grace we do grieve over our sin, in fact our hearts are overflowing in grief because of what we've done, and we long so badly to be holy, we want so much to, to better love Christ and to better love our families and to better represent our Savior to this world, and yet we've fallen again, and so we can begin to think thoughts like this. There is no hope for someone like me. I am a terrible mess. Look, I believe God can do anything with anybody in this world, but I am so messed up. I am so twisted. I mean, I thought I had this beat, and here I am again. If anybody in this world is too broken to be fixed, it's me. You ever felt like that? And yet... The Abraham of chapter 20 will become the Abraham of Genesis 22. The Abraham who here flounders will continue to be taught and chastened and matured and he will become the man of faith that we see in Genesis 22. He will be the man willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. He will be willing to sacrifice the child in whom is wrapped up all of the promises of blessing because he has come to such a place in his faith that he is sure that God will find a way to do what God has said he will do, even if it means God raising Isaac from the dead to do it. How did he become such a man of faith? Well, on the way, there were many faults and failures, many relapses, Friends, this should be encouraging that there is hope for even us. God can take even us and make us men and women of strong faith. We have the promise that He who began this good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And therefore, we should not lose heart. When we find ourselves having fallen again, yes, we should grieve. But then we should get up we should renew our resolve to follow Christ and we should know that our Savior will be faithful to His promises to us. We should rejoice that in Christ our sins are forgiven. We should hate the sin that we have committed. We should love Christ more and we should pursue Him all the more confident that our unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. Amen? Observation two. That was observation one. Even after much grace, we can still relapse. Observation two. It was very short. It's simply that our sins do not affect us alone, but affect others as well. 
Our sins do not affect us alone, but affect others as well. We saw this very clearly back in Genesis 12, so I'm not going to spend much time on it now. All I want us to note that when we sin, our sins have consequences for those around us. It may not always be readily evident to you how your sin, maybe it's you by yourself in secret, nobody knows about it, and you think, it won't hurt anybody. But that's not the way sin works. Sin affects never just you. It will affect your heart and your mind. It will harden you a little bit so that you fail to love your spouse as you ought. So that you fail to care for your children as you ought. It will create effects that affect other people. Now in this case, it's very clear that Abraham's sin affected other people. It affected Sarah by putting her into the care of a pagan king. It affected Abimelech and his household and his kingdom, putting them in danger of having God's wrath come against them. We're told that God closed up the wounds in Abimelech's household. It was through the promised son of Abraham that the promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ, was to come. So dear friend, even here, Abraham's sin was putting your and my salvation in jeopardy. Do you understand that that's what's really at stake in this passage? God has declared a plan to save His people and He's going to do it through a Messiah who's going to come through this promised son to Abraham and Sarah and Abraham now sends Sarah away. And if Sarah's here and Abraham's here, there will be no promised son, which means there will be no Messiah, which means there will be no us here today worshiping. Abraham's sin is putting the very purposes and plans of God in jeopardy. Now praise God, as we will see in a few minutes, God's sovereignty will always overrule our sins. But friend, even one little half-truth carried with it all of these grave consequences. We must never presume that a sin we commit will only affect us alone. One sin is often like the bursting of the floodgates, not only in your life, but it affects the lives of others, so that one sin is followed by another, by another, by another, by another. And so we ought to hate all sin. And we ought to keep a close watch over our souls and strive for purity through our Savior. Observation three about what this passage tells us about us. Observation three about what this passage tells us about us. This is from Matthew Henry. I thought it was an interesting point. thought I'd mention it. He says, we learn here that we can have confidence before God when our hearts do not condemn us. We can have confidence before God when our hearts do not condemn us. 1 John 3.21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we can have confidence before God. You see, God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, Abimelech, you are a dead man. You're a dead man. Why? Because of the woman you have taken. She is another man's wife. And so God is waking Abimelech up to the precariousness of his situation. God is turning the lights on so that Abimelech can see what's really going down here. Now, Abimelech has not yet touched Sarah. But should he do so, he will be committing a great sin against God. And God holds marriage in very high esteem. Marriage is meant to reflect God's own faithfulness to His people. 
Marriage is meant to portray Christ's commitment to His bride. Adultery, therefore, is a high offense in the eyes of God. It's a form of blasphemy about Him and His people. And so this is a grave sin that Abimelech is about to commit. And yet Abimelech is able to respond to God with great confidence. Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he himself not say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Why was Abimelech able to respond so boldly to the God of the universe? Well, only because he knew that he was speaking the truth. And that in this matter he had been pure. That he had acted only in innocence. And so we see in him uh, uh, the truth of the, of, uh, of the fact that we too can approach God with confidence when our hearts are innocent in his sight. To which you say, Justin, that does me no good. <laughs> because I'm not innocent in his sight. Dear friends, what has God given you in Christ Jesus? What is it that we look to Jesus for? In Christ We have been declared pure before God. We have found forgiveness in Christ so that we can now, like Abimelech here, responding boldly to God, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that God is pleased to have us there, knowing that we need not fear His wrath anymore. Now, also note in this passage that as soon as Abimelech's ignorance was over, That is, as soon as he found out that Sarah was Abraham's wife, we learned that that immediate moment, something had to be done. He had to do the right thing, and if he did not do the right thing, he would no longer have any excuse before God. The moment God told him the truth, he could no longer claim ignorance, he could no longer go to God and say, I have been innocent. He had something to do. God tells him, Right? That she is uh, Abraham's wife. And then verse 7, Now then, return the man's wife. Now that you know the truth, you must do the right thing, Abimelech. Remember James 2.17? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Dear friends, I imagine this scenario has happened in your life where you were going about your life doing something and you did not know it was a sin. You did not realize that what you were doing or about to do was wrong. And then all of a sudden, through the Word, through a Christian friend, someone brought to your attention that what you were doing or failing to do, that that this was wrong. Well, before you had been walking in ignorance, but now you have a responsibility. There it is. You see it black and white in the Bible. Do you trust Christ or not? Will you obey or not? Will you follow Jesus or not? Well, that's what God is saying to Abimelech. Thus far you have acted innocently, and I have kept you from sinning, but now you know what to do. Go do it. And Abimelech, though we have seen him as a pagan king, proves to do what God tells him to do. and does it right. Let me tell you a few things about what this passage tells us about God. Let's see a few things about what this passage tells us about God. First of all, this one's very brief but interesting. 
we see that in our passage, we see in our passage, that God can and at times has revealed himself in dreams. That God can and at times has revealed himself in dreams. And moreover, he has not only revealed himself in dreams to his own people, but interestingly, in the Old Testament, we often see God reveal himself in dreams to people in high places who are not his own people. So we have King Abimelech here. We have Pharaoh in Egypt during the days of Abraham's great-grandson Joseph. We have Nebuchadnezzar during the days of Daniel, whom God speaks to in a dream. We might say, why would God do that? Why does God appear to these mighty kings of the day in dreams and, and tell them things? Well, it always seems to be for the sake of his people under their authority. So, for example, we have this in the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 105, 14 through 15. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Well, that psalm, which is proven true time and again in Scripture, comes true right here with Abraham and with Sarah. Because what God is telling Abimelech is, don't you lay a finger on Abraham. He is a prophet. right? Don't you dare harm Abraham. Don't you dare lay a hand on Sarah. She's one of mine. Therefore, do as you're told. God will go to great lengths to ensure that his people are cared for and that his plans come to pass. Second observation concerning God in our passage, is that He will not punish anyone unjustly. Our God will not punish anyone unjustly. Remember back in Genesis 18, this was the big issue between Abraham and the Lord. And Abraham declared, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fair as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Well, here we find the same issue at hand. Will God condemn this man? Strike him dead? Because he in his ignorance, not knowing, took Abraham's wife as his own? Will God treat Abimelech unjustly? That's what Abimelech asks, isn't it? Right? Verse Uh, For, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Well, the answer is that God never judges unjustly. In verse 6, God says, Yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. On that day, on this day, on the last day, every judgment of God will be fair and true. Our God is forever righteous in all His judgments. But wait a minute, Justin. If God is not going to condemn Abimelech for this sin, since God Himself declares that Abimelech was innocent in the matter, Why does he then say to Abimelech, return Sarah to Abraham, and then Abraham will pray for you, and then you will live? You see that in verse 7? right? If, If Abimelech has done nothing wrong, 
Why is God telling Abimelech, Abraham must pray for him if he's to live? Well, it seems to me that the issue in verse 7 is not what has been done innocently in the past, but what is to be done now in light of what Abimelech has learned. He has acted so far in his integrity. The question is, will he now preserve that integrity by returning Sarah untouched to Abraham? If he does not return her untouched to Abraham, he will die. But if he does, Abraham will pray for him and he will live. God has decided that Abraham must go to him in prayer and that this will be the confirmation that Abimelech has done the right thing. Okay, but why do that? Right? Why have Abimelech's living or dying depend on Abraham praying for him? Well, God appears to be drawing Abimelech's attention to the importance of Abraham. As I mentioned earlier, this is one way of showing Abimelech as king that he is not to lay a hand on this man Abraham, though Abraham has acted wrongly in the matter. Abraham is a prophet. He speaks the truth of God. By making Abimelech's life or death hinge upon Abraham's prayer, Abimelech is made to see not only how important this man is, but that Abraham prophesies for the true God. Abimelech probably thought he was a greater man than Abraham, being a king and all. But now he is the one to be humbled before the prophet of God. More importantly, God is using Abraham's sin to bring this man to some knowledge of himself. We're not told whether Abimelech became a follower of God or not. But he is certainly here receiving a great means of grace. And his kingdom is receiving a great means of grace of coming to see the true God in action that many in that day never had. God does not judge unjustly. Third observation concerning God and what we learned about Him in our passage. This, this was good. We don't, we don't think about this often enough. Our God works providentially to keep people from committing certain sins. God works providentially in believers and unbelievers to keep people from committing certain sins. Friends, it is worth considering that as bad as our world is, it is not as bad as it could be. You ever considered that? Every day, sins are considered and sins are plotted that are never ultimately carried out or brought to fruition. Every day, God works through His holy providence so that circumstances that would lead us into great sins are avoided. Sometimes God restrains us from sin by causing His grace to affect our hearts and our minds so that evil thoughts and evil desires do not take root. And sometimes God uses the general circumstances of life, His providence over the events of each day to move us in a direction that keeps us safe from certain sins we would have committed. God allows only, listen very carefully to this, this is sweet. God only allows so much sin in our lives and in this world 
as is necessary for His purposes to be fulfilled. Every sin that God permits to occur in this world will be used ultimately to show His glory and to accomplish our good. And the number of sins that God will allow to take place in history has been set by Him and there will not be one sin more than what God has chosen to use for His glory and our good. And therefore, He in His grace restrains sin every day. And so this is why He says to Abimelech, Oh, you would have sinned. You would have committed adultery with this woman. But it was I who held you back. Folks, God doesn't come to us every day and show us all the sins He held us back from. I dare say we would be amazed. And therefore, we ought to be thankful for God's grace, unseen. God bears with sin only that He might show the glory of His justice and His mercy. But God does not delight in sin. And in the end, He will destroy this world and recreate it as a place where sin is no more. The world is quite wicked, but it is not nearly as bad as it could be were the invisible hand of God not restraining the wickedness of man, not to mention God's invisible hand restraining what He allows Satan and his demons to do. I hope that's an encouraging thought. It's encouraging to me. Last observation, number four. And here's the chief observation from our passage, the one that I want us to mainly see, though we won't spend too much time on it. God's sovereign purpose will not be thwarted by the sins of His people. God's sovereign purpose will not be thwarted by the sins of His people. You know what the word thwart means? I guess we don't use that word much anymore. I didn't think about that when I used it, to, to thwart. Um, okay, if my plan is to, uh, to go to Walmart, and on my way someone runs into me, and now I'm stuck with a broken car on the side of the road, my plan to go to Walmart has been thwarted. <laughs> right? It's, it's not happening. It's over with. Other things have come about. Well, that never happens to the plans of God. Our sins never thwart God's purposes. Despite, listen very carefully, this is good. Despite Abraham acting sinfully and foolishly, bringing danger to Abimelech and his kingdom, and putting the very promise of God in jeopardy, God overruled all else and brought good from this terrible situation. Even more, he proved himself faithful to his promise. Here is the great message of Genesis 20. Even when God's people fall, even when God's people prove themselves unfaithful, God will never be unfaithful. Our God loves His glory so much. Our God loves His Son so much. Our God loves His people so much that He absolutely will not allow anything to get in the way of accomplishing His good purpose. And so despite all our feeble faith and despite all our foolish sins, if we are God's, His promises will come true. And that's what the rest of Genesis 20 is all about. Leading into Genesis 21. The whole point of this passage is to say Abraham almost messed up everything, but God sovereignly brought it to pass. We come to the opening verses of chapter 21. Abraham and Sarah have been reunited. 
Sarah conceives and bears the promised son. Abraham had laughed at the promise of God. Sarah had laughed at the promise of God. Yet God has been faithful. And now we find Abraham and Sarah laughing for joy. The name Isaac means he laughs. Verses 6 and 7 are wonderful. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 21 are wonderful. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said that to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Friends, God has given us a great promise that He will make all of us who look to Christ holy and pure. That He will make us a blessing to others and that He will welcome us into His presence when we die. Justin, here I am, and I have fallen again. I have messed up. I'm grieving over what I've done, and I'm wondering, have I ruined everything? Have I thwarted God's plan for me? Have I hindered God's purpose for me? Is God's promise that I'm going to be made holy and be a blessing and be with Him forever, is that promise no longer true for me? No. You and I can get up from our sins. We can thank God for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ. We can rejoice that we are safe and sound in His loving arms. And we can know that nothing will keep our God from lavishing His people with undeserved, glorious love for all eternity. Folks, as long as we are loving Christ, no sin will thwart God's plans for us. Christ is faithful, and he will, prom- he will do what He has promised. So let us imitate Him. Let us be a people who are faithful to what we have promised, even when others are unfaithful to us. Let us love our Savior. Let us rejoice every day that our hope of heaven is secure with Him. Let us remember that Jesus Christ is a solid rock and as long as we are looking to Him, we have nothing to fear. Church, let us be encouraged. Sinners, see that there is hope. Let us all look to Jesus. Let us all rest in Jesus. And folks, we will forever be in good hands. Let's pray together. there's any here who have never looked to Jesus, who have never run to Him in their hearts and given themselves to Him. If there are any here who are just 